Thank you, Frank. That was delightful. Yeah. I loved it. Did you like it? Yeah. I can see you. <laughs> so on our second uh, Sunday of Advent, the second Sunday of a new year, uh, we turn again to the Gospel of Luke. There are three uh, years in the liturgical cycle. Um, Mark is one year we read through it in order um, from Advent through Pentecost and the season after Pentecost. And then uh, the next year we read through the Gospel of Luke and then through the Gospel of Matthew. And then we return again to the Gospel of Mark. And you're sitting there thinking, well, what about the Gospel of John? Why doesn't he get a year? Well, that's because he gets sprinkled in throughout the three years. But this year, we're starting with Luke. And last week, uh, the scripture was from the penultimate moment um, in the story. And today, we turn to the beginning of the story. Think of it like a movie, where you go and the opening scene uh, shows you the penultimate moment, just before the the climax and the denouement of the movie, you go back in time to see the backstory that leads you up to that moment. That's what we're doing today. We're going back in time, in this case, uh, back to the prophet John. Now, John and Jesus are cousins. We know this. Uh, Mary and Elizabeth are cousins. Elizabeth, in her old age, with her husband Zechariah, who's one of the prophets, uh, a priest, rather, of the temple, conceive a child very late in their years, like Abraham and Sarah. And they don't expect it to happen, and it happens, and this miraculous birth is John. Mary has a visit in the hill country in Galilee from the angel Gabriel, and she conceives a child through divine intervention. And uh, in her musings and perhaps, I would say, maybe social discomfort, being pregnant and unwed, she goes off to the hill country of Judea and visits her cousin Elizabeth, who's already six months pregnant. And there John leaps in his womb when Mary comes into his presence, and Elizabeth counsels, consoles Mary, and Mary sings her wonderful song, the Magnificat. She goes home with Joseph. They will travel to Bethlehem, and the baby will be born. And then, 30 years later, John and Jesus come back together again in the baptism that he's preaching in the wilderness. So today, we turn our attention to the prophet, the wild-eyed, crazy man, John, who lives out in the desert. We know from Mark that he eats locusts and wild honey and has a goatskin coat, not a camel head jacket, a goatskin coat. Can you hear me? Okay. I forgot to put in my hearing aids this morning and so I can't really even hear myself, which you're probably thinking, lucky you. What about the rest of us? Okay. 
In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the emperor, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was ruler of Galilee, his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Echeria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So this long introduction, the emperor this, the king that, the high priest here, because in the ancient world there's no universally recognized calendar, so you locate dates by reference to public figures and their date of reign. But it's more than that. Luke is laying out this long, this list of important people in order to contrast them with John in the wilderness. The emperor, the governor, the rulers, the kings, the high priests, those esteemed by society and held in high regard who sit literally in the seat of power. And yet, where does the word of God come? To them? No. To John, this lowly, wild-eyed man who lives in the desert. Demonstrating once again God's presence and preference for the poor, the marginalized, the dispossessed, those who are thought to be crazy or whatever outside the norms of our social expectations. This is where the word of God comes. And so Zechariah went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight. The rough places shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John is the one who fulfills the vision, the understanding, the prophecy of Isaiah, of one who's calling the people to a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Metanoia, the Greek word of repentance, doesn't mean what we have transformed repentance into. The term repentance in modern American parlance really means some kind of moral change, giving up old bad habits and undertaking new righteous ones. And those things, they're good, but that's not what repentance is from the biblical viewpoint. Repentance is about changing your mind, turning around. The more accurate translation of repentance, preaching a changing of your mind so you may appreciate 
the forgiveness of all the things you've done to mess up your life. Turning around. Repentance is not a matter of God going, meh, 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 meh. I saw you. You thought you were behind closed doors, but I saw you. I know what you did, right? But that's not repentance in the biblical mind. Repentance is turning around, facing into the right direction. Recognizing that God loves us just the way we are. So instead of turning in this direction, focusing in this direction, consumed with our own self and our own concern and our own satisfaction of our vain desires, but instead turning to look to God, turning from the, the shadows of ourself and turning to the light that's shining upon us. If you're turned away from the light, all you will see is shadows. But when you turn to the light, you find your direction. Now, I've been preaching here long enough that I'm running out of sermon illustrations. That's just the way it is. Not really. The world keeps giving us too many illustrations. But this is one that I've shared with you before. And if I have told you this before, don't stop me. A fellow's walking across a pack, and on the other side, on a bench, he sees a person sitting with a cat on his lap. A beautiful, do you know this one? Oh, okay, sure. Go ahead, finish the pet. Okay, okay. So he sees a cat. Do you remember this one? Maybe you don't. So he sees the cat. He says, oh, that's beautiful. And he goes a little closer, and he notices that the person is stroking the cat. That's great. Cats love to be stroked. He gets a little closer, and he sees that he's going against the cat's fur. So every time he strokes the cat, the cat's fur is jumping up, and the cat's going, and digging his knee, his claws, into the lap of the man. Sounded more like a goat than a a cat. (laughs) And as he gets even closer, he can hear the man whispering as he strokes the cat. And the cat is arching his back and digging his claws in. And the man is whispering to the cat, turn around. Turn around. That's what John is saying out in the desert. Turn around. And when you turn around and face into the light, the rough places in your life can become plain. The crooked places can become straight. The mountains and the hills be made low and the valleys raised up and create a highway for God. So as Vanessa so wonderfully pointed out last week, 
Advent is a season for us for letting go of the dross, the clutter of our lives. Emotional, spiritual, material stuff that weighs us down, that becomes impediments to our moving toward and with God. And as in Malachi says, like a fuller's soap, that great lie in a hot tub of water to wash ourselves clean. You ever taken a, a bath with lye soap? Uh, you're lucky you didn't grow up in Maine. Okay. The cleansing, focusing ourselves on God. That's what our Advent journey is. And from Paul's letter to the Philippians, in the first chapter, Paul's letter to the Philippians really is a love letter. Paul usually writes to congregations which had been called together in response to Paul's preaching, but not always. And oftentimes he writes to congregations in order to help them address situations of conflict within their gathering. But when he writes to the Philippians, it's just love and affirmation, peace and harmony. These are folks who've really turned around. They were smart enough to change their position on the lap of the gentleman or the gentlewoman in the pack the hand of God calling us to a different orientation. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying for, with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you to be with all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and the full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you will be pure and blameless, called home, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the praise and glory of God. This is my prayer for you, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. That's what John is calling us to. To reorient ourselves to 
recalibrate our aim to turn around, to become focused on the light so that the love of God may flow forth in our living. Amen.